Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. There were three ravens sat on a tree Down a down, hey down a down They were as black as they might be With a down One of them said to his mate Where shall we our breakfast take? With a down, dairy, 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 down, down. Hello and welcome to the Three Ravens Christmas Special. My name's Martin Vaux. I'm a writer, storyteller and English romanticism obsessive. And I'm joined, as ever, by my partner in crime and all dark arts. Eleanor Conlon. Hello and Merry Christmas. Yes, Merry Christmas one and all. Ho, ho, ho. Gotta say, this December has seen us both engaged in all sorts of seasonal shenanigans. So it's nice to finally be sitting down with a drink in front of the fire, roasting our chestnuts and taking a load off. Definitely. You've been on stage starring in The Princess and the Winter Dragon across 27 performances at Trinity Theatre Tunbridge Wells. And you've been the voice of steam lights on the Bluebell Railway near us, providing Christmas magic to families going on steam train rides through the Sussex countryside. Plus, of course, we've had our 12 Days of Advent mini episodes, plus our ghost story for Christmas yesterday, and all the rest. So now, finally, we're going to sit back, unbutton the top buttons of our trousers, and let our bellies have that extra bit of space to talk about the history and folklore of Christmas. And you've written a special Christmas story, haven't you? I have. Between this one and our Patreon-exclusive story for December, The Snow Queen, I'm hoping people are feeling suitably seasonal. Speaking of which, we have some new Patreon supporters to thank, Cassandra and Laura. All hail Cassandra, King of Patreon. All hail Laura, King of Patreon. Thank you both for joining our Conspiracy of Ravens on Patreon. And thank you to all our supporters on Patreon, many of whom have been with us since the very beginning. In fact, 
speaking of the beginning, we reached a pretty wild milestone just in time for Christmas. Yeah, this is bonkers because since the podcast launched in March to today, we can officially announce that we've had over 100,000 downloads. 100,000. It's a wild and crazy number and so exciting. So thank you so much to everyone in the Three Ravens community for spreading the word about the podcast and helping us reach new people. It really is your work that has made this happen and we could not be much more grateful. It's been something we've really marvelled at as the weeks have gone by. Literally every morning we wake up, I make coffee, Martin checks the numbers and we have a little smile and a cuddle and reaching 100,000 downloads is a massive achievement for us. We feel really proud. We do. And who knows what's next? The sky is the limit. But for now, it's worth saying that those people supporting us on Patreon, it really does make a huge difference to us. And if you're not already a Patreon subscriber and would like to support the podcast, then please visit patreon.com forward slash three ravens podcast and sign up. As we say each episode, we've got tons of exclusive content on there from monthly Patreon-only episodes, including ghost tours and seasonal episodes like our Snow Queens episode from earlier this month, to episodes of the Three Ravens Film Club, our newsletter full of folk traditions for the month, Mm. and lots of interesting features and ideas for tarot spreads and magic spells. The January edition will, of course, be coming out on New Year's Day, so that's exciting. Plus, you get access to a special RSS feed where you can access all of our episodes ad-free, our Monday episodes early and we also publish our stories as text versions on patreon so they're there too it's really nice it is nice yes so please consider signing up for three dollars a month or six dollars a month at patreon.com forward slash three ravens podcast and on thursday we'll have our new film club episode published on there all about the 1965 japanese folk horror movie kwaidan what a beautiful film yeah anyway more on that then as for now Let's start talking Christmas. Okay. Martin, you've been doing lots of research into this for a little while now. So take us back to the start. When are the earliest records of celebrations in England on or around December the 25th? Well, straight away, we need to draw a bit of a distinction here or a set of distinctions between Christmas or Christmas Tide, which is a Christian celebration, and other seasonal celebrations which took place before Christmas existed. Yes, we don't want to run full pelt into controversy here. And while neither Martin or I are Christians, we respect church traditions and are absolute pluralists. We think as long as you aren't hurting anyone, you should celebrate and worship however you see fit. Indeed we do and we celebrate loads of different festivals including Christmas and we do like to go to church and sing carols. We've often been asked to read at services including the nine lessons and carols here in Sussex but we're also into Yule and midwinter celebrations and lots of others because in our minds we're always looking for reasons to celebrate. And we also like traditions as is no doubt obvious from Three Ravens. We hope so. <laughs> and for us one of the most interesting things to do is poke about in history and see where the roots of these traditions seem to come from. And when it comes to, quote-unquote, Christmas, or at the very least, end-of-year celebrations, we can say they are truly ancient, can't we? Oh, most definitely. For example, digging into prehistory in England, we know that the winter solstice was seen as a very important day. Like its opposite day in what we call the Wheel of the Year, the winter solstice is significant because of the sun. Hence the term solstice. Sol means sun in Latin. Not just Latin, actually. The word sol exists in Proto-Indo-European, which, if you've never heard of it, is the ancestor language linguists 
theorize existed during the Stone Age, which then morphed into languages we know and speak across Europe, northern India, and parts of Russia. And within that kernel, we have a very important idea to acknowledge, namely the significance of the sun in spiritual and religious life right from the birth of civilization. Yeah, of course, because the solstices are important and have always been, because at midsummer we have the longest day in the northern hemisphere, i.e. the day when, due to the motions of the planets, the sun shines for more hours than it does on any other day of the year. Mm-hmm. While at the winter solstice, or Yule, or midwinter, we have the opposite, the shortest day when the sun shines for the fewest number of hours. Exactly that. And in England, we know that the winter solstice had particular significance to Neolithic man because of so many stone monuments such as Stonehenge but also Avery, Castle Rig, New Grange in Ireland. There are loads of them. And for all, particular doors and openings align with dawn on the winter solstice, implying huge effort was made to mark the occasion all across the British Isles. And these megalithic monuments date from roughly 5,000 to 6,000 years ago. So the same time Babylon was founded in ancient Mesopotamia, long before the ancient Greeks or the ancient Romans. And in the founding of these kinds of societies and communities, we have basically basically the birth of what we recognise as society. Yeah, precisely. So we know humans did exist before then, and we have cave art and flint and antler remains and so on, some early musical instruments, but none of that material from before about 5,000 or 6,000 years ago seems to make much fuss about the winter solstice. Building out from just the monuments, we also have some pretty cool archaeological evidence of feasts and celebrations linked to the winter solstice too. Do we? Well, this is exciting. Please tell me more. Well, we've mentioned ideas like this before on previous episodes of Three Ravens, but digs around some monolithic sites, not least Stonehenge, have shown evidence of massive feasts. In particular, there are huge pits filled with massive quantities of pig bones, which show signs that they were roasted. Not only that, but archaeologists have been able to identify that these bones are of pigs around nine months in age. So we can deduce that if these pigs were born in the spring, then they were raised and fattened up for about nine months, then slaughtered and roasted at midwinter. And it's important to know that it was quite rare for these early communities to roast meat. So the best guess we can make from all this is people did celebrate and make quite a fuss about the winter solstice, gathering and feasting at these important sites from as far back as five or six thousand years ago. That is genuinely mind-blowing and so exciting. And to me, it makes so much sense that people would get together at this darkest moment of the year and be together when it's so bleak and gloomy, chasing away the dark, so to speak. And then, of course, after midwinter, there are about three days when the sun is very low in the sky. And then it noticeably starts to rise higher from the 25th of December. Yeah, exactly right. And we know that, for example, the Romans celebrated this moment of the sun beginning to rise higher in the sky at the festival of Sol Invictus, the victorious sun or invincible sun, well in advance of the arrival of Christianity. So, so interesting. And to keep things pagan for a moment, we've spoken a bit on recent episodes about Saturnalia, this feast and orgy Romans celebrated during December, Mm. starting at midwinter. But do we know how old that festival is? Well, Saturn is, of course, the Roman name for an older deity. The Greeks called Saturn Cronus, and we have writing about Cronus from about 700 BC in texts like Hesiod's Theogony. You love a bit of Hesiod, don't you? I can't lie. He's amazing. The first poet... 
What a hero. Anyway, Hesiod gives us the earliest account of the Greek story of creation, where Uranus, the sky, and Gaia, the earth, give birth to Cronus, whose name literally means time. And Cronus is one of 12 titans born from Uranus and Gaia, with others including Rhea, meaning fertility, Hyperion and Phoebe, meaning light and vision, Oceanus and Tethys, the world seas, and others. But the main point is that the birth of Cronus, so the birth of time, is celebrated on December 25th in the classical world, namely on the first day the sun began to observably ascend after the darkness of midwinter. Absolutely fascinating. Then, of course, this astrological event is later marked by many other cultures and religions, including the Romans and the Christians and so on. And just to talk a bit more about Cronus for a moment... He has a bit of a rough ride, doesn't he? Well, he's not a wholly sympathetic character in that Uranus, his father, hates many of his children, including the various giants like the Cyclops and the Hecantonchires. So Gaia, Cronus's mother, makes a sickle and challenges her children to rebel against their father. Cronus is the only one who's willing, so he takes up literally time's sickle, and then Cronus slays his father. In quite a painful way, if I remember rightly. Yeah, he castrates him, with Uranus' seed and blood spilling onto the earth and creating several other primal forces, gods and demons, such as Aphrodite, the Fates, the Nymphs, a host of other monsters and so on. One day we should really think about a mini-series on the Greco-Roman gods, because there's so much to say about them. After all, Cronus and Rhea then reproduce and birth Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades Mm. and their sisters Hera, Hestia, Demeter and they in turn rebel against Cronus creating the Olympian pantheon which is all pretty captivating. It definitely is but to keep us a little more Christmas focused for now we should also take a moment to talk about a very important character in pagan belief namely Father Christmas. Oh boy well he's a whole other minefield isn't he? (laughs) Because we can link veneration of characters we would recognise as similar to Father Christmas to Celtic deities like Mabon, the child of light, as well as Kanunos, the horned god, and foliate heads such as the one on display at the temple of Aquasulis in Bath, yep. and of course the Holy King. Indeed we can, and in all this we need to remember that although we have some statuary, which mostly survives from ancient Gaul and some places in Scandinavia, as well as in places in Britain, all we really have is stone to go on, and that's because, of course, wooden effigies and plant-based icons simply could not have survived across these spans of time. No, of course. And the first surviving writing we have in what we now call England or Great Britain, and certainly the first writing of substance, only really dates from the 7th or 8th centuries, filling out quite a bit more during the 10th and 11th centuries. Quite so. So Yule, which we know existed before Christianity, celebrated in Norse and early Germanic cultures, was an important festival. The earliest writing we have on the subject comes quite late, though, from the 15th century, so the 1400s. But in those texts, we have some Old Norse poetry written down when it's attested, and this is highly appropriate for us, that Yule was actually specifically known as the Raven's Feast. What? Yep. Oh my goodness, that's so awesome. Is this related to Odin's ravens, Hugin and Munin? Exactly that. Thought and memory, also known as Hugin and Munin. Oh, I'm made up about this. The Raven's <laughs> Feast. So tell me more. What do we know about early Yule celebrations? Well, the word Yule comes from an old word spelled G-E-O-L, Yule, meaning feast. It's also the root word of the term Jolly, so gyoli, meaning feasty. (laughs) 
Yeah, I know. Feasty Christmas. That's right. So we know that from about the 5th century that the Anglo-Saxons celebrated a month of Yule, lasting through December into January. And, as also mentioned during the Prose Edda, the Norse gods were known as Yolnar, or Yule beings. And we have a few interesting customs recounted across the texts which do survive. Again, these focus around pigs and swine, where it was a custom to process swine through communities and touch them as they passed to bless them, then to sacrifice them to Freya. Freya being the Norse goddess of fertility, peace, the new year, and beginnings and endings. Yeah, indeed. And so Freya, we know, was celebrated as the bringer of the new year, the mother of it, as it were. And that these forms of worship form the basis of the Perktan processions, still celebrated in many Alpine countries in Europe, as mentioned on our Krampus episode a couple of weeks ago. So Freya comes at the tail end of the month. Yep. And before that, we have this time of darkness where Odin is on the wild hunt. The wild hunt incidentally is thought to very much pertain to the northern lights with displays of all this brilliance and ghostly light up in the heavens showing odin is out with the ghosts of the dead during this dark time and it was believed during this dark time that restless spirits were also abroad yes this is where we get tales of the draugr isn't it yeah the restless dead the draugr were believed to rise from their tombs particularly barrows and cairns and roam the land alongside other dark spirits. So a lot of Yule celebration was about scaring off these spirits and about purification. I'm imagining this is linked to the kinds of sacrifices you mentioned before. Yeah, definitely. Which also included fire, of course, and the use of smoke and holy herbs, as well as the writing on the body with blood from animal sacrifices using hlautenar, literally blood staves made of holy wood, plus lots of dancing, singing, drinking, music, and general noise-making to scare the spirits off. And so, I mean, this sounds like quite a lot of fun, (laughs) a little bit messy, but does Father Christmas suddenly then pitch up at this huge celebration? Well, Odin does. So the first toast of the major Yuletide celebration is drunk to Odin, or Woden, the father god, who, a bit like Cronus and Zeus, rebels against the first creator god, the giant Ymir, from whose entrails sprung the Norse universe. Delightful. Yeah. And after Odin was toasted, the next god to be praised was Njord, god of the sea, and father of Freya, who was the third to be toasted. So I'm going to go out on a bit of a limb here and say we could potentially draw a link between Odin and his wild hunt and other horned god and hunter deities like Kanunos and the fact that Odin used to arrive at these Yuletide feasts to be toasted and maybe posit that Father Christmas could have his roots in the Norse Odin? Well, you certainly wouldn't be the first person to draw that link. And it's important to know that although we call him Odin or Woden, he has over 170 names in early European cultures. It's no coincidence, of course, that we have all these father gods with big white beards and wisdom and so on, all having common characteristics. No, of course not. Although when we think about Father Christmas specifically, we do know that during the High Middle Ages, so the 10th and 11th centuries, let's say, it was very much expected that this old man dressed in green, covered in holly and furs, pitched up on Christmas Day during feasts. And that, despite attempts by the church to suppress these pagan traditions, they endured, with this character, often known as the Lord of Misrule, continuing to appear in English courtly life right on through the Tudor period 
and Stuart period right up until Charles I lost his head at the end of the English Civil War. Whoa, that's wild. And I suppose it makes sense in that the Anglo-Saxons were, of course, Norse and early Germanic peoples, and the Normans were literally... Norsemen, yes. Vikings who came down from the north to conquer and claim what then became Normandy in northern France. Yeah, precisely. So we have these overlapping cultural concepts, some from prehistory, some from Norse paganism, some from older classical sources, where, let's not forget, the Romans had come to Britain, conquered it, bring it with them all their ideas before the Roman Empire fragmented and the Romans retreated. So a bit like waves on a shore, you have concepts of worship related to the winter solstice and midwinter arriving and retracting and mutating over time, well before William the Conqueror comes and starts stamping the land with cathedrals, abbeys and monasteries. And do we think amongst all these ideas we find the roots of wassailing as well? We don't just think this, we know this. Because wassailing was a pre-Christian tradition based on the Norse term vasheil, which was a toast meaning good health. And although we lack written accounts, we do know that wassailing was already a very, very old tradition by the 13th century, and we can fairly safely assume people were wassailing during the Anglo-Saxon era. They were actually doing it post-Norman invasion, but, you know, it may have been around earlier. I think most people consider the wassail to be quite cute. Today we have, for example, groups of carol singers yeah. who might wander around English towns and villages singing outside people's homes for donations given to charity. And that's all quite refined and reserved. But <laughs> a traditional wassail was, well, not so nice. No, I mean, traditions around wassailing are different around different parts of England, as you might expect. But in wassailing, we find the roots of what many people think of as Halloween trick-or-treat traditions, in that people dressed up as a wide range of characters and processed through towns and villages demanding food, drink, and money. Yeah, put that way, it does sound a little bit threatening. Well, it was intended to be, because it was meant, we think, to represent part of the wild hunt, including ideas of captured draugr and demons. People would sing as they processed in their costumes, and the kinds of figures you might see would be Odin and or Father Christmas, animal-human hybrids like bull-headed and goat-headed characters, plus demons and spirits. And there's definitely a sense in which wassailers would kick your door down and invade your home if you didn't give them the things they wanted. It was hardly about peace and goodwill towards men. That's terrifying. Mm. All made worse by the fact that these people would have all drunk and might continue to actively drink from the wassail cup. (laughs) Yeah, we have some ancient surviving wassail cups, interestingly, centuries and centuries old, some in precious metals, some in wood. And the basic idea of these is that they were filled with booze, ideally hot booze, as it was called out, and then the group of rowdy wassailers would wander around getting more and more zozzled, singing and harassing people for more booze, tasty things to eat, or money, until they went away. (laughs) (laughs) And into more modern times, we do have quite developed records of wassailing, don't we? So recipes for the wassail cup and so on. Yeah, definitely. So, for example, in the southwest, so Devon, Somerset, Dorset, Gloucestershire, Herefordshire and Cornwall, the wassail cup was traditionally filled with mulled cider, sometimes a version called lamb's wool. Lamb's wool is actually meant to be made with an ale base, then spiced with stewed apple added to the mixture, creating a kind of cloudy white appearance floating in the drink, which is said to look like lamb's wool. It sounds disgusting, but we actually drink lamb's wool every year and it's very nice. (laughs) Yes, it is. But we have varying accounts from all over the place, basically. What's generally agreed, though, is that wassailing in England seems to have taken place 
from St. Nicholas's Eve or St. Nicholas's Day on the 5th or 6th of December, also known as Krampusnacht, as addressed in our recent Best Year episode, then right through to what we now call Twelfth Night or Epiphany Eve a month later. And that fits very neatly over the ancient Norse month of Yule. It does. Fascinating. At this point, it's probably worth turning our gaze quite a way south and then a little way east, (laughs) while also maybe winding the clock back a bit. Because during the early centuries, AD or common era if you prefer we've also had a bit of a development in the holy land haven't we yes we have the goings-on that put the christ into christmas <laughs> now i'm wondering if we should spend very long recounting the story of the nativity because mm. certainly in england just about everyone will have been mandated to have taken part in nativity plays each christmas normally in primary schools where children act out the story of the birth of jesus oh yeah and you know the birth of jesus is one of the most famous stories in all of western culture but rather than giving a blow by low account i'm gonna hit people with some highlights because let's not forget christmas isn't really meant to be a very special time in christianity the big celebration for christians is supposed to be easter that's very true and it's interesting that in england certainly christmas seems to hold much more of a cultural power than Easter does. And this hasn't been without its controversies over the centuries, particularly in the early church, but also well into the medieval era. And as for the Christmas story, it is, of course, set during the period of Roman Empire. But straight from the get-go, things become very complicated with the Christmas story when we learn that Joseph, who's betrothed to Mary, is descended from David, king of the Jews, and Solomon, and so on, as discussed in our Five Gold Rings episode. But Joseph is, of course, not said to be Jesus's father. Rather, Jesus is a product of Mary's union with the Holy Spirit or God in the form of a Holy Ghost. Yes. And without getting into a whole bun fight about the nature of the Gospels of the New Testament, (laughs) we have four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And the Christmas story doesn't actually occur in all of them. No, it only appears in the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew. And these books were alleged to be the accounts of disciples who only met Jesus when he was an adult. So they weren't there at his birth, nor before it. And their accounts differ on many details. For example, according to Matthew, the Archangel Gabriel visits Joseph, not Mary to tell him the good news. The idea that there is one definitive version of this story is a bit wrong-headed. No, I mean, again, this is undoubtedly a complex subject, but rather than the four Gospels all offering one truth, Mm. it's quite a clever aspect of the New Testament that they don't agree because it encourages people to recognise that the word, so to speak, is not to be understood as a single necessary truth. Indeed, indeed. And and I'm not suggesting that Jesus did not exist. There's plenty of quite good evidence to suggest that a prophet called Jesus was at work around the time the biblical Jesus was thought to be in operation. The veracity or true nature of the virgin birth is always going to be a matter of faith. As it should be. Indeed. But one thing we can also be fairly confident about is that it doesn't seem that Jesus was actually born on year zero, as it were. We can't necessarily say he wasn't born up to 500 years beforehand or 500 years afterwards. We have, for example, physical and surviving records of Herod's actions, and they don't match with the accounts in the Bible. Plus, dating Jesus' birth on December 25th didn't actually come about until much later. No, so trying to put dates 
late into the Christian year was a long running project mm. lasting well through the medieval era. And the reason we have December 25th as the date of Jesus's birth is because Christian scholars much later calculated from working out the dates as mentioned in the Gospel of Luke and only in the Gospel of Luke, the Annunciation, so the visit by the Archangel Gabriel to Mary, actually took place on the spring equinox, mm. March the 25th. Yeah. And then, of course, nine months later, you get December 25th. So that's that. But even just a cursory look at the history of the Feast of the Annunciation will show you that it has moved a lot of different times. So believe us when we say we're not trying to be controversial here. Rather, it's important to know that December 25th was a very important day in England and in many other places before the Christianization of Europe. And for many people, it remains really important as distinct from the Christian celebration of Jesus' birth on that day. And as you mentioned before, Easter was traditionally considered a much more important festival. Yeah, much like the sun dying at the winter solstice and rising again three days later, Jesus' resurrection is the special and unique miracle about which Christianity really builds itself. Because the promise of eternal life in heaven is the offer Jesus makes to his followers. And unlike pre-Christian religions, this idea of life in eternal paradise is a pretty new idea. I mean, sure, the Vikings have Valhalla, the endless feast and battleground in the hereafter, but Judaism, Hinduism, Zoroasterism, ancient Egyptian and classical belief, none of them contain the same concept of heaven. And because Easter and the resurrection story were seen as so important, in much of Europe, and particularly in England, the early church was really hostile towards Christmas. I did wonder, because of course, and uh, to my shame as one of his most ardent fans in modern times... (laughs) Oliver Cromwell has had a bit of a bad rap when it comes to cancelling Christmas. Well, in defence of Oliver Cromwell, it wasn't his idea, and it wasn't just Christmas he cancelled either, nor was he the first to call for it, because we have writings from the 10th century onwards from abbots and bishops and monks criticising pagan practices as seen at Christmas time. They did like some of it, saying, for example, that the bringing indoors of foliage, use of red and use of gold in decorations was appropriate, what with green representing eternal life, red representing the blood of Christ, and gold representing the union of the heavenly and earthly. But from the 1400s on, we get this drumbeat of criticism about, say, people dressing as this pagan figure of Father Christmas, or the Lord of Misrule, or the Holly King, and about feasting, drinking, dancing, the playing of pranks and games, all that. Yeah, so to dig into the Lord of Misrule a bit more, we've talked already on the podcast about the appointment of of boy bishops during this time and about how midwinter and the month around it was seen as a time for role reversal. Yeah, it was seen as a time when things were turned upside down. So dating back to Saturnalia and the celebration of Kronos, Sol Invictus, etc. That was a time when it was known for masters to serve their servants rather than the other way around. And this carried on into medieval life. You get all sorts of names for similar things, don't you? Like the Feast of Fools, the Feast of Asses and so on. Mm. And we know that during these times, in addition to the servants being served by their social superiors, we have things like courtly masks, pranks, games and dances played and enjoyed by people from across social classes. Yeah, exactly. And these events were overseen by someone dressed up in a certainly Odin-adjacent outfit as Father Christmas or the Lord of Misrule. He was a kind of party coordinator who encouraged toasts, music, dancing, special performances. And this is 
absolutely ubiquitous in English courtly life during the 13th and 14th centuries, when monks write about it rather snootily as something which should be cancelled, but which, because they don't think they can actually stop people, they kind of just accept it and, and you know, agree they have to abide it. <laughs> and we know, for example, that parts of these celebrations during the Middle Ages, and in some place since, indeed, included mama's plays. Indeed, yeah. And mama's plays were basically special folk performances seen at many seasonal festivals where community members would dress in disguises as rhymers, passeggers, solers, tip-tearers, remboys and galoshins, along with plenty of other fabulous names, yep. and perform plays based on old stories, some from folklore, some from the Bible. There'd usually be a fight, lots of excitement, and again, the church didn't much like them. No, not really. And mummers were travelling players, so sometimes they would come to particular courts, often they went to community spaces. And it's important to remember that the expectation wasn't that families would spend Christmas alone in their houses at this time. People would go and celebrate together, normally in their local lord's house, where they would be hosted as a collective. Definitely. And then from Mama's plays, we move into mystery plays, more explicitly based on events from the Bible, mm. and then into the birth of early modern drama. But I think it must have been really captivating to attend these Christmas celebrations with everyone dressed up, wearing masks, anonymised. It suggests a very different atmosphere to modern Christmas celebrations. Oh, absolutely. And it's worth also saying that the giving of gifts wasn't always associated with Christmas Day either. For example, Boxing Day, which I don't think is really recognised in America in the, in the same way that we don't recognise Thanksgiving, perhaps. But Boxing Day isn't about the sport of boxing, but rather it takes place the day after Christmas, known as St. Stephen's Day. And it was traditional on St. Stephen's Day for the poor to be given boxes full of gifts by the more fortunate. It's a very long-running tradition in England and Great Britain more widely, although these days, rather than charity, Boxing Day now marks the beginning of the post-Christmas sales. Mm. So you're more likely to find people going out to find bargains rather than giving gifts to the needy on Boxing Day. Yeah, I mean, it has been a national holiday since 1871, even though it was marked right through from the earliest parts of English history. And it was also, linking back to Odin, a traditional day for hunting as well. Yeah, I mean, even in our lifetimes, the Boxing Day hunt, mm. it was it was famous day for fox hunting. Yeah. Fox hunting was uh, outlawed here in England under Tony Blair's new Labour government. But for the longest time, it was one of many, many days where the wealthy would leap onto horseback and go and kill animals for fun. Yeah. Going back to Oliver Cromwell, though, it's important to know that right up through the Tudors and Stuarts, Father Christmas and or the Holly King didn't have anything to do with bringing gifts on Christmas Eve. Back before Henry VIII, St Nicholas Day was its own festival with its own traditions, including Black Peter and so on, as mentioned on past episodes, with all of that taking place on December 5th or 6th. And those celebrations were then done away with during Henry VIII's Reformation in the 1530s and into the 1540s. Yeah, I mean, it's worth us taking a moment to consider how significant an impact those Henrician reforms had on English and Welsh cultural life. Yeah. We speak often on Three Ravens about how we don't like Henry VIII. Yeah. And there is a bitter sweetness to him as a character in English history. 
Because on the one hand, he breaks the English church and therefore English politics away from Rome and Roman Catholicism, which is generally seen as a good and helpful thing. Quite, because in doing that, Henry VIII kind of birthed the notion of England as a superpower. We kept our own wealth and taxes rather than sending all this money across to the continent. And by freeing ourselves from a number of ancient religious and legal strictures, the nation went from being a slightly lonely, rainy, modest island off Europe's north coast to becoming in due course the mightiest global superpower on the planet. While at the same time, and as we've chatted about so many times, monasteries and cathedrals and abbeys were where wisdom was kept. Well, exactly. Monastery libraries held almost all the chronicles we had from the past, all the things we talk about, written by monks, and what we generally know about the oldest aspects of English history, aside from the archaeological evidence, of course, is from what survived the dissolution of the monasteries. Mm -hmm. And when all of those abbeys, priories and cathedrals were burned down, their libraries were burned down too. Yep. And sure, a lot of their treasure was taken, much of it melted down to make new currency or jewellery or other items. But all of the books, all of the paintings and art, those illuminated manuscripts, particularly for me, records of early English poetry and music, all of it was deliberately destroyed. And that's because Henry VIII's mission was to wipe the slate clean of England's past and birth a new era. But my heart genuinely aches to think about what was lost during that period of revolution and iconoclasm. Me too. It's so sad. But still, let us feast and be merry, Eleanor, rejoicing that we at least know as much as we do. I suppose so. Plus, in this context, we can frame Henry VIII as much more of a Christmas villain than Oliver Cromwell, even if the Puritan protectorate did act like a bunch of jerks from the 1640s onwards. Yeah, I'm up for that. (laughs) (laughs) But you said uh, Christmas wasn't the only festival that the protectorate banned. No, so the parliamentarians cancelled every festival (laughs) starting around 1645. So at this point, Easter's cancelled, Christmas is cancelled, as are all the other minor saints days. And this led to widespread riots and rebellions, and people did defy the government and celebrate it anyway. But in order to do so, Christmas changed from being a public community event to becoming a quieter domestic occasion. Well, that's very interesting. And I know that when Charles II came to the throne during the Restoration in 1660, all of these prohibitions were lifted. They were, and so a number of traditions came roaring back, but a lot of them were slightly mutated. For example, the Lord of Misrule did not come back after the Restoration, and neither did Father Christmas. Wait, what? There was no Father Christmas? Nope, not during the late 17th and 18th centuries. We call this period the Augustan era in English history, leading into the Romantic or Regency. And yet, during that century, the English weren't that bothered about Santa (laughs) or about grand feasts or anything similar. Whoa, how strange. Yep, that kind of pagan set of traditions and associations dies off, as does belief in a Christian god in many quarters, as prompted by the Enlightenment. But that then sparks a kind of counter-revolutional reaction, doesn't it, in the form of the folk revival. Yeah, exactly. So starting in earnest at the end of the 18th century, but gathering pace during the 19th century, helped along by writers like Walter Scott and many others, a load of older Christian and folk traditions come back. But some of our ideas were actually imported, not least Santa Claus. Are you joking? We take our ideas of Santa from elsewhere. We do. In part, they come from America and in part, they come from Europe. But it only really kicks off again in England during the 1820s spurred on in no small part by the publication of the poem A Visit from St Nicholas by American poet Clement Clark Moore in 1823. That's the night before Christmas poem, isn't it? Yeah. 
The night before Christmas, when all through the house not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care, in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. Yeah, exactly. That one. And basically, although it might sound crazy, a huge number of our ideas about Father Christmas or Santa Claus come from that poem. It's the first time he comes down the chimney. First time he has reindeer leading his sleigh, it really is the text from which modern Santa springs. He was still green at that point, though, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, it's a bit of a myth that Santa was turned red by the Coca-Cola company. And there absolutely was a very famous 1930s advertising campaign with Santa or Father Christmas dressed in red. But ideas of Santa wearing red costumes did exist in Europe before that, as associated with St. Nicholas. And we shouldn't overlook the importance of Charles Dickens' novel, Christmas Carol either. No, because in that one, the ghost of Christmas past appears and he's dressed in green with a crown of holly and he has a wassail bowl, he's covered in furs and surrounded by a feast. And I think some people miss the significance in that he is the ghost of Christmas past in that Dickens gives us this version of Father Christmas as he was in the past. But by the 1840s, that idea of Father Christmas is dead and gone haunting Scrooge as a ghost. And is it just England that sees this revival in folk traditions during this time? I know Ireland, Scotland and Wales enjoy changes in folk belief and folk practice, but is it widespread in Europe? Oh, it definitely is. We get the revival of the Krampus traditions. We get the invention of the Yule Cat in Iceland, which is this mythical beast that lives in the shadows during the Christmas season, eating people who aren't gifted new clothes across the season. (laughs) Oh, wow! (laughs) Plus, in addition to new inventions like the Advent calendar, which you talked about in our Christmas crafts episode last week, we also get other innovations such as the invention of the Christmas cracker. Yeah, this was another 1840s Christmas explosion thing, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly right. So a man named Tom Smith from London wanted to find an interesting way for selling French bonbons. So he came up with the cracker as a kind of novelty packaging idea for them. Initially, they came with a bonbon, a little motto and a snap in the middle. So when you pulled the ends of the cracker, it went bang and presented you with your sweetie. That then evolved over time to include cracker jokes, paper crowns, toys, all sorts of stuff. And we in England, of course, have Christmas crackers as part of our Christmas dinner. Yes. But just to finish on that, at the start of this episode, you identified that pig and boar were very much the traditional meats eaten at ancient midwinter and Yule celebrations. Yeah. But I don't think many people would think to eat pork on Christmas Day now. So when did that change? Well, from the Norman invasion onwards, the whole concept of the Christmas feast definitely escalated. Because honestly, Christmas and Yule feasts were hardly reserved for pork, pig and boar. Even before then, people would eat all sorts from fish and fowl to beasts, plus all sorts of vegetables and ale, wine, cider. I mean, it was a free-for-all. People went mad for it. Sounds like a recipe for indigestion. Well, Christmas (laughs) dinner still is, frankly, but imagine a time before antacids. It would have been murder. Of course, I hadn't thought about that. (laughs) Anyway, to be a bit more specific, we know that people favoured boar, mutton and beef at Christmas from the Norman invasion onwards, with beef being prized as the king of meat in England in particular. We can link that perhaps to notions of the fattened cow and sacrifice. Yeah, that makes sense. But intriguingly, the tradition of eating beef at Christmas in England lasted right through until the 19th century. What? But people talk about Christmas goose 
Christmas or Christmas turkey, not Christmas beef. What's going on, Martin? This seems insane. Well, this all comes down essentially to social stratification because goose was, during the 18th century, seen as the option for the poor. It was much more affordable, as was chicken, while turkey was much more expensive and only really bought by the wealthy of that time. So by the 19th century, the turkey had become the aspirational option for the less well-off, while goose is out of fashion. Well, now turkey is maybe seen as the more common or traditional option and goose is a bit rarer. And beef and pork are pretty much nowhere to be seen come Christmas. (laughs) What a wild ride this has been. As if I wasn't already stuffed with Christmas food. You've now got to stuff me full of Christmas information too. (laughs) Well, I hope you've saved space for pudding, Eleanor, because I've got a story to tell. It's called A Song of Oak and Holly. And I'll start spinning my yarn right after this. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A hare's ears twitch as it observes with beady eyes hidden in the snow. Branches move and clatter, crows take wing, their cawing dull against the dim, grey sky. A heavy footfall sounds, then another, closer. The hare flees, skittering through roots, bounding across the forest floor, spreading the word. It is happening again. The sound it speaks of is of a tree walking, a man walking, a god walking. A mighty step of sap and moss, lichen dust and leaves deep green, rich with berries. His cloak trails snagging branches, his crown is a ring of thorns red about his brow. The air about him is frost-bright, ragged on the lungs, but he is strong, barrel-chested, wrapped in rags as warm as hearth-breath. About his head and face a beard hangs, silver-white as mistletoe berries, long and snarled with moss, blown by the wind, ragged as stag-velvet. He stops moving, listens, hearing all things now. The praise songs, the bells ring, the lovers kiss, the aching tears of loneliness. He is all places, in all lands, all seas, all skies. His blood is wine-rich, honey-thick. His heart beats with the pulse of every heart, of every drum or feast or falling grain of sand. 
Time is, in him, an echo, a cacophony so loud and full it makes him weep and strain to seek the noise that's only his to catch. It lives in the rays of the weak new sun, thin as fresh spring water. Yet he catches that piercing music on the wind, follows the stream to its source, finding the infant crying, nestled in a knot of tangled roots. The child keens, its bark skin soft, barely out of the acorn. Hatched new, the holly king lifts the seed boy in his hands, small enough to pinch to death, and places him into his palm. You are my doom, the king says, his voice of cracking ice, of embers rustling, of spices on the tongue. Yet, my brother self, I will, for love of you, die once you are strong. The weeping prince falls silent, held aloft by the holly king, who takes him then to the purest waters which run in a forgotten place. There he bathes the boy, dresses him in ivy, the child's horns already rising from his head. About them sits a raven, watching, seer of things to come. The fox nearby has secrets, badger, heart, bear and boar, all wait and bide their time. But first from the secret pool the salmon rises, the oldest beast, with wisdom he will whisper. I trust the Holly King says in a language for all seasons that you will do as always. The Parliament of Beasts assembled, each for their time and purpose bows before his majesty. And so the boy is set down, the child of light left amidst the wild to be beloved. His master teachers know him, will teach him how to be himself and prepare him for the task to come. This duty now complete, the hoary Lord of Frost, Keeper of the Dark, moves off into the meeting place. There, amid the shine-bright snow and spider-webs, the bare tree trunks and winter peace, he meets his love with laughter. She, too, smiles for having carried off herself reborn, a poet's speech, an earnest hope, a budding rose with thorns to later bleed her, she too knows the hourglass has tipped. Her moments are so few with him, their bond a ribbon knotted round their wrists, eternal loving, endless yet to end. Wise now, they share the loving bowl and gather up their learning, speaking it into the secret parts of things. They riddle it in rock, write it into wind and set it roaming. Each carries skulls, mind palaces where sheaves of parchment curl in piles too countless to be known. Which hallway now to wander? Which stair to lighten up with candle brightness? The hours are short, and all things ever eager for forgetting. Bones ache through days and nights, for they are aging fast. Snowdrops hatch in clutches, and they kiss, their wrinkled lips aching only for each other. One more embrace will do, they say, not needing words to do so, for next time they will know, as they do now, what's been, what is, and what is coming. 
The frost upon the ground draws back, and all about is singing with leaf brightness. To their throne rooms they step apart, the king and queen of seasons fast unwinding. The wool of the world is ragged at the edges, unpicked to be respun and woven to a different purpose. Alone, on aching limbs, he barely walks, then crawls, exhausted, journeying to the place where once he sat in glory. Oath-speaker, rule-maker, guardian of all the world's domain, all this and more, but now Old Man Winter is a joke the children don't remember. His hall, no longer hung with golden leaves, with apple boughs and berries, stain-touch bright, is all but empty now. The roof is gone, replaced with thin blue sky, and from the walls where once grew fungus, stinking wet with autumn rain, saplings reach as slender fingers or as hair, growing upwards, ever upwards. Before the throne now stands his fate, not much older than a boy. This prince of summer strokes the stone of that great seat, a crown of galls and leaves about his head. I am your doom, the prince says, his voice of mewling lambs, green shoots of wheat that soon will wave within the fields. Yet, my brother self, I will, for love of you, kill you, for you are weak. They duel, then, the prince of coming seasons raining down, swift terror on the king. Holding up his hands to shield himself, he strikes out vainly. The prince is quick, and about the holly king's head his berries burst, flocks of birds seeking out his blood to feed their young. His wood is shattered, groaning, broken down to make fresh nests, his beard and hair cut, and from them grasses grown. In smiling pain, he dies, his once tall form a thin and twisted mess laid low across the ground. What was his throne is now his tombstone. The boy become a man, the prince become a king. Love blossoms in the sun of his short reign, for though his poet princess once was courted, sung to with lyre and pipe, their duet now becomes a custom, a chorus chanted all throughout the trees. Their kingdom is of flowers brightly blown but for an instant. The king and queen dancing in a festival of panic. The chaos of new life is theirs to master, a wild wave to ride, a passion reeling, headier than ale or wine or mead. She is the moon so full he cannot see it, and he the midday fire in the sky, and from their love the movement of their heavens comes a seed of life which weeps and keens within the forest's depth. A hare's ears twitch as it observes with beady eyes, hidden in the bracken. Branches move and clatter, crows take wing, their cawing inky black against the bright blue sky. A heavy footfall sounds, then another, closer. The hare flees, skittering through roots, bounding across the forest floor, spreading the word. It is happening again. The sound it speaks of is a tree walking, a man walking, a god 
walking, a mighty step of sap and moss, lichen dust and leaves deep green, rich with fruit. His cloak trails snagging branches, his crown is a ring of acorns, nut brown about his brow. The air about him is hot as life, choking thick, but he is strong, barrel-chested, naked, but for flowers, vines, and blossom on the turn. About his head and face a beard hangs, jagged as lightning, long and rich with insect life, crawling on his chin, sticky with the blood of summer. He stops moving, listens, hearing all things now. The love songs, the merry circle dance, the lover's kiss, the aching tears of loneliness. He is all places then, in all lands, all seas, all skies. His blood is ale dark, thick as elder flower syrup. His heart beats with the pulse of every heart, of every drum or feast or falling grain of sand. Time is, in him, an echo, a cacophony so loud and full it makes him laugh and strain to seek the noise that's only his to catch. It lives in the beating fury of midsummer, thick as the teeming mud upon the flooded plain. Yet he catches that piercing music on the wind, follows the stream to its source, finding the infant crying, nestled in a knot of twisting briars. The child keens, its bark like wax, fringed with thorns too small to catch. Hatched new, the oak king lifts the berry child in his hands, small enough to swallow on his tongue, and places him into his palm. You are my doom, the king says, his voice of cattle shifting, of hedgerows in full bloom, of fruit skin pierced by smiling teeth. Yet, my brother self, I will, for love of you, die once you are strong. The weeping prince falls silent, held aloft by the oak king, who takes him then to the purest waters which run in a forgotten place. There he bathes the boy, dresses him in furs, the child's antlers already rising from his head. About them sits a raven watching, seer of things to come. The fox nearby has secrets. Badger, heart, bear and boar all wait and bide their time. But first from the secret pool, the salmon rises, the oldest beast. With wisdom, he will whisper. I trust, the oak king says in a language for all seasons, that you will do as always. The parliament of beasts assembled, each for their time and purpose, bows before his majesty. And so the boy is set down, the child of darkness left amidst the wild to be beloved. His master teachers know him, will teach him how to be himself and prepare him for the task to come. This duty now complete, the hoary lord of harvests, keeper of the light, moves off into the meeting place. There, amidst his fading hall of golden crops and watchful things, the stink of fermentation in the air, he meets his love with laughter. She, too, smiles for having carried off herself reborn, a blackbird's song, a snowflake's life, a white-hot coal to burn her down in time. She, too, knows the hourglass has tipped. 
Her moments are so few with him, their bond a ribbon knotted round their wrists, eternal loving, endless, yet to end. Wise now, they drink to heady drunkenness, days growing ever shorter. They hew their wisdom, stack it into logs, weave it into stalks of corn and store it in those places where the neediest will find it. They sing a golden hymn, kiss bright stories into gemstones, loose arrows into roaming beasts to scar them with harsh truths. Each carries skulls, mind palaces where sheaves of parchment curl in piles too countless to be known. Which hallway now to wander? Which stair to lighten up with candle brightness? The hours are so short and all things ever eager for forgetting. Bones ache through days and nights, for they are aging fast. Leaves fall dead and into mulch upon the ground. They kiss their wrinkled lips, aching only for each other. One more embrace will do, they say, not needing words to do so. For next time they will know, as they do now, what's been, what is, and what is coming. Below them, the ground is swept with frost, pathways they must walk which lead only to darkness. To their throne rooms they step apart, the king and queen of seasons all but ended. The flax of time is fraying, unpicked to be relaced and plaited for an end that's different yet familiar. Alone, stripped naked now of fallen finery, he barely walks, then crawls, exhausted, journeying to the place where once he sat in glory. Oath-speaker, rule-maker, guardian of all the world's domain, all this and more, but now the Lord of Summer is a half-forgotten dance whose steps are but a means of tripping over. His hall no longer hung, lined with fruit, with corn and gourds and blooming petals, is all but empty now. The roof is gone, replaced with an iron sky. And from the walls where once all things found lovers, hiding at the edge of twirling hearthsong, all fades and all decays, mushrooms beading up out of what once was. Before the throne now stands his fate, not much older than a boy. This Prince of Winter strokes the stone of that great seat, a crown of holly leaves upon his head. I am your doom, the Prince says, his voice of spreading ice, long nights, of pipe and tabor played to drive away things deep within the dark. Yet, my brother self, I will, for love of you, kill you, for you are weak. They duel, then, the prince of future seasons raining down swift terror on the king. Holding up his hands to shield himself, he strikes out vainly. The prince is quick, and about the oak king's head his acorns clatter into mist, squirrels leaping forth to gather his remains and store them safely. His wood is shattered, groaning, broken down to rot into the forest floor, his beard and hair cut and from it watchfires lit. In smiling pain he dies, his once tall form a thin and twisted mess laid low across the ground. What was his throne is now his tombstone. The boy become a man, the prince become a king. 
Love creeps on silent feet amidst the gloom of his short reign, insight branching out in secret. For though his warrior princess once was courted, brought down from off the mountains into his embrace, their dueling now becomes a custom, an ebb and flow of word and deed, of meditative thought and fiery action. Their kingdom is of forge fires burning, hammer blows and stories told to crowds but for an instant. The king and queen move slow, resigned to duty and to care. The stewardship of endings is their task, their tribute given out as finger rings, the dead, the hungry mouths outside their door. She is the moon, a blade-like sliver, and he the universe of blinking stars. And from their love, the movement of their unyielding ground, comes a seed of life which weeps and keens within the forest's depth. A hare's ears twitch as it observes with beady eyes, hidden in the snow. Branches move and clatter, crows take wing, their cawing dull against the dim grey sky. A heavy footfall sounds, then another, closer. The hare flees, skittering through roots, bounding across the forest floor, spreading the word. It is happening again. The sound it speaks of is a tree walking, a man walking, a god walking. A mighty step of sap and moss, lichen dust and leaves deep green, rich with berries. His cloak trails, snagging branches, his crown, a ring of thorns, red about his brow. The air about him is frost bright, ragged on the lungs, but he is strong, barrel chested, wrapped in rags as warm as hearth breath. About his head and face, a beard hangs, silver white as mistletoe berries, long and snarled with moss, blown by the wind, ragged as stag velvet. He stops moving listens, hearing all things now. The praise songs, the bells ring, the lovers kiss, the aching tears of loneliness. He is all places then, in all lands, all seas, all skies. His blood is wine rich, honey thick. His heart beats with the pulse of every heart, of every drum or feast or falling grain of sand. Time is in him an echo, a cacophony so loud and full it makes him weep and strain to hear the noise that's only his to catch. It lives in the rays of the weak new sun, thin as fresh spring water. Yet he catches that piercing music on the wind, follows the stream to its source, finding the infant crying, nestled in a knot of tangled roots. The child keens, its bark skin soft, barely out of the acorn. Hatched new, the holly king lifts the seed boy in his hands, small enough to pinch to death, and places him into his palm. You are my doom, the king says, his voice of cracking ice, of embers rustling, of spices on the tongue. Yet, my brother self, I will... For love of you, die once you are strong. So there you go, Eleanor. 
Christmas. That was so lovely, Martin. I feel quite emotional having listened to that beautiful story. I love your take on how the seasons happen and how there's this sort of unfurling love story which makes everything happen in the harvest and the springtime. It's so lovely. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> I've obviously spent quite a lot of years, as I think a lot of people have, who've thought very much about paganism and the Oak King and the Holly King, about what that must be like to go yeah, on that journey. and it was such a really beautiful imagining of it. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I like the cyclical nature and all of the animals. I could picture everything so clearly. Oh, well, thank you. Well, I really appreciate that. I'm very glad you enjoyed it. I loved it. What a <laughs> nice Christmas gift. <laughs> oh, well, thanks. Should we talk correspondence then? Yes, let's. Okay, well, thank you to everyone who has been kindly sharing our posts on social media, as well as writing to us and sending us lovely messages. Thank you, especially to the people who reviewed us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. We saw the numbers of reviews go up, but nobody actually wrote anything. No. So we can't see your names. No, so we can't thank you in person. Alas, but please, if you do have a moment as ever, please hop onto iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcasts and drop us some stars and write us a review. Everyone really does help. We've had some brilliant posts and chats happening on the Three Ravens podcast group, though, mm. including from Emma, Dominic and Lissa about Christmas reading. Particular shout outs to more fans of The Dark is Rising. I should be reading that next yep. week. And The Box of Delights. And from Alicia posting about Perkta Tag. Yes, we've also had lovely messages from and chats with Helen, Sarah and Just Eat the Donut about all sorts. Christmas music, weaving and corn dolls, all sorts of lovely stuff. Thank you in particular to Tammy for posting about collie birds and Justin about quite how unlike big ducks geese really are. Yeah, follow Justin's advice and internet search cobra chicken. <laughs> you will not be disappointed. And from Andrew, who helpfully said in response to our Druids episode that rather than Iolo Morganwich, we should be pronouncing his name Yolo Morganwich. Or we should alternatively just be calling him Edward Williams because that's his name, the Dirty Fraud. <laughs> now, in terms of our likers, commenters and super sharers this week, special thank yous go out to Eric, Rachel, Sam, Craig and Tony on Facebook, Eleanor, Nigel, Hagatha Hayes, Linda Jane and Vivid and Veiled on Instagram, and Monica, Norma, Sheila, Podcast Overlord, and Endora the Witch on Twitter. As ever, if you'd like lots of bonus and exclusive content, please do sign up for our Patreon for $3 a month or $6 a month at patreon.com forward slash three Ravens podcast. New film club episode coming Thursday. Quite on. Very exciting. And we'll be back on Thursday too with a Something Wicked episode where Martin is going to be talking all about another nasty murderer. Yep, Hans Trapp, a horrid character who still haunts Alsace-Lorraine to this day. In the meantime though, Merry Christmas everyone. Yes, Merry Christmas. We hope you're having a lovely time. And if you're not, we hope our wafflings have made it a bit more lovely than it might have otherwise been. Either way, we'll speak to you again soon. And while our story's gone that way, we'll go this way. And remember, don't whistle till you're out of the woods. Our theme song is the traditional folk ballad Three Ravens, performed by Eleanor Conlon and Ben Harbour. And our logo is by Ollie James Dare. The Three Ravens podcast is a Rust and Stardust production, written and produced by me, Martin Vaux. Thanks for listening. God sent every gentleman Such hounds, such hawks and such lean man With a down, dairy, 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 down, down
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.